Dr. Ethel Tungohan, an associate professor of politics at York University. Welcome to Academic Andes. Today we have part two of our pandemic parenting series. When we mentioned on Twitter a few weeks ago that we were doing a couple of episodes on pandemic parenting, we heard from many of you. We read about how tired and burnt out you're all feeling as we enter year three of this pandemic. One listener told us about the hunger games of trying to book vaccine appointments for all of their family members. Several listeners talked about having to be the most organized in their entire life, trying to juggle virtual schooling, writing, researching, teaching, and doing service. And yet others talked about the absence of institutional support. Despite facing multiple care responsibilities and living with immunocompromised family members, Many colleges and universities, and even labor unions that are meant to protect faculty members, are essentially shrugging and saying, that's too bad, but you've got to make it work. Others highlighted the struggle to find care for children while they can produce more research before their funding runs out. And others talked about how grad students were essentially left on their own during the pandemic. These struggles can hit us so personally. The pressures of being a parent in academia are so tough at the best of times. Add a pandemic in the mix of it? Well, your feelings of guilt, uncertainty, and being overwhelmed just magnify. It makes me wonder, how do we manage pandemic parenting on a personal level? How can we rethink some of the learned expectations that we've adopted after being in academia for so long? So today on Academic Antis, we are so, so privileged to have uh, one of my favorite people who actually I text her a lot for for parenting advice, <laughs> uh, Dr. Yolan Buka, and uh, she is an assistant professor um, in the Department of Politics at Queen's University. Uh, thank you so much uh, for coming here. And is it okay if I call you Auntie, Auntie Yolan? Because that's how we refer Absolutely. to folks. Absolutely. I'm, I'm an auntie to many. So thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited. And it's such a, you know, an amazing way to catch up because we actually haven't seen each other it's such a long time. I know. And I think the last time was, were we having, were we having coffee at the Danforth and I was pregnant? Yep. Was that, oh my gosh. Yes. Was that three years ago or two years? Oh my gosh. I can't. It was, it was, it was that long ago. Oh, oh my goodness. Well, I'm happy that we're catching up and also recording this uh, because I've been wanting to have you on the pod because I just, I mean, I love everything that you share on Twitter um, and it's just such an honor. Um, <laughs> so I guess I'll start by asking, how's it going? How's pandemic parenting? This is the start of year three. Yeah. Um... <laughs> <laughs> It still sucks, you know. Um, I think uh, for a little bit of context in Ontario, we had a, quite a significant lockdown um, last year and the kids ended up not going back to school at all until the end of the school year. And then, you know, September, at least for my children, was um, kind of the return to normal school for the first time really since before the Christmas break, they had had a little bit of an attempt in February and that didn't work out mm -hmm. right, in 2021. But, you know, we find ourselves January 2022 and the universities 
at least my university in 2020, 2021 was kind of really proactive about, you know, thinking about the tenure clock for, you know, junior faculty and certain types of accommodations. And now I think people are kind of in the groove of people need to go back to work no matter what. But the children are still not in school. And we know that the government is talking about sending them back next week. But I know that a lot of parents are thinking and debating whether they will be sending their children back in school because they're not fully vaccinated, because the numbers are a bit worrying. So at this point, I feel like I was, my partner and I were better prepared than we were last year. Mm. And when I say better prepared, is that mentally we told the children before the Christmas break that they may, there was a possibility that they were not going to go back to school um, as scheduled. Mm-hmm. Um, we also bought, you know, masks, um, in very large quantities before the Christmas break mm-hmm. in anticipation for, you know, what would happen in January, February. And that, that's a little bit of the American in me. Cause I spent, you know, a significant number of years in the U S where, uh, the mentality is the government doesn't necessarily have your back. You got to figure things out on your own. And I, w- and I'm also a little bit paranoid as a person, just anybody who knows me knows that <laughs> I plan a lot just because I watch too many dystopian movies and sci-fi and I always think the apocalypse is tomorrow. So I also loaded up on testing kits before they ran out at a private company. And that also, I want to express like this comes from a position of me being able to afford not to rely on the government because I was afraid. Mm -hmm. I was afraid that the government would let us down. And I feel like we've been let down. So it's not great, but um, I have to say, I think we're better prepared, but even if we're better prepared mentally, physically, and emotionally, we're absolutely spent. We're just exhausted. Absolutely. And one thing that you said that really resonated with me, um, well, two things. The first was we're kind of talking about this like longitudinally. It's like, well, actually, in March 2020, this because this we've been living with this reality for a long time. And so when I ask what how's pandemic parenting going for you? I mean, I think you're like, well, what part? Like what stage? Stage one? Or no stage five. Stage one, stage two, <laughs> stage three. Yeah. And with and with which child, right? Because aside from the logistics of trying to keep our children safe, there's also the way each child responds to not being able to go to school, not being able to play with their friends, not being able to participate in the activities that they normally do and feeling like they have to stay home or there's a sense of fear. And I posted this on, on Twitter not too long ago. I was talking to my youngest child and I was reminding her of a time where she was playing with people in different classes. Like I was asking her the name of her classmates and she was like, oh, you know, there's so-and-so and so-and-so. And I'm like, oh, what about, you know, other people that are not in your classes? And she said, oh, I know a couple of names, but I don't know them very well because, you know, we only stay in our own class. And then when we play at recess, we have our own spot. We don't play in other classroom mm-hmm. spots. And I was like, oh, that's unfortunate. It's not like before. And she's like, oh, what do you mean before? <laughs> and I was like, oh, do you remember there was a time where, you know, at recess, you would go hang out with your older sister because you wanted to spend time with her. And she had to think about it for a few minutes. 
And then it came back to her and she said, right. I used to go, it used to be okay. It used to be safe to go play with people from other classes. And then she was, then she realized she's like, ah, COVID. And I'm like, yeah, it's COVID. Right. But she actually doesn't remember a period where it was okay, safe to play with people in the same grade as her, but in a different classroom. My, while my oldest, you know, you know, really struggled with being able to play. He's the kind of person who makes friends on the pitch. Like he plays a lot of sports Mm -hmm. and all his friendships were around activities. Mm -hmm. So for him, the evolution of the pandemic and the opening it up and closing and opening and closing has definitely had an impact on his mood and his mental health, but also the type of energy and that I have to put towards making sure that he's going to get out of this on the other side. And how old are your kids again? Because you all you have three children, right? Yes, they are age seven, nine, and eleven. So it's such a wide range. And can you speak a little bit more about how you know you, we we can't have like universal parenting styles? Each child reacts differently, mm-hmm. and so there are different yeah. experiences they've each had with the pandemic as well. Like, how have you toggled that? Yeah, it, it's really difficult because, um, you know, you're right. I, and I mean, I consider them to be relatively close in age and yet they're going through things different, like very different things. My youngest was barely introduced to the concept of, you know, learning in school mm. <laughs> as opposed to playing in <laughs> daycare yeah. when the pandemic started. So for her, her experience of schooling is tied to online very much so. And she has a very strong dislike for that. Mm. So there's a lot of negotiation that goes on with paying attention. And I know that I'm not the only one. A lot of parents have struggled with younger children to keep them engaged and, and enjoying the learning process, even though it's been remote. You know, my middle child is, is very different. She has a very different personality and, you know, she's managed things a little bit better than the other two. But at the same time, she's also the kind of person who doesn't want to make waves. Maybe it's the middle child syndrome a bit. <laughs> you know, you, you kind of want to, you want to keep things cool. But the, you know, older children who are approaching their tweens, you know, there's a whole social element oh, yes. and their change of moods that you also have. So you see, you ask yourself, am I dealing with Um, them growing up or is this something that is related to the pandemic? So there's a lot of questions that you ask as well, right? So luckily I have, you know, various communities of people who have children of different age groups that you can kind of say, oh no, this is normal, you know, going towards my teenage years behavior. Um, No, this is, this might be COVID. (laughs) This might be COVID related and, and, and lockdown related, but you have to, without wanting to, I don't like you know, this idea of helicopter parenting and being, you know, following everything, but you want to be aware. You want to be aware. And I've realized that I've grown as a person also much more dependent on my children emotionally mm. because I was, you know, I've been isolated from most of my friends as well for most of the, the pandemic. Mm. So, you know, whatever I do to, 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 to find pleasure in life mm-hmm. in spite of restrictions is not only for them, but it's also for me, mm. you know, but that's, that's also not the type of parent that I was before. I mean, sure. I enjoy hanging out with my kids, a lot of fun, 
but I'm also, you know, my own person. I had, it was very easy for me to travel and because, because of the nature of my research and my work, it's a lot more difficult for me now to think about leaving my children behind for a work trip than it was. It's also changed me. It's changed them. It's changed me, my relationship with them and with my partner. I found emotionally that I've become more dependent on my family, my nuclear family unit than, than I was in the past, which is, I'm not quite sure if I'm comfortable with this just yet. <laughs> I mean, is it dependence on your nuclear family or is it a reprioritization of um, the relationships that we hold the most dear? Yeah, I think it's a little bit of both because of the nature of the work that we do, right? Um, and because of the nature of my institution, which also, you know, again, I, I am, I'm speaking from a position of, of relative privilege to, I'm in, I'm in a research intensive university. My teaching load is not extraordinary. It's, it's quite good. I've been able to continue part of my research despite the distance because I've, I have, I'm working with partners in different countries, which means that I don't have to go to the hospital, unlike my sister mm. who's a doctor, yeah. right? So she has to go to the hospital yeah. all the time. Yeah. I, could, I get to stay home. So I've been able to see, literally like see my children mm. differently. Mm. Um, learn about their interests mm. in a much more involved way um, for, by the nature of, you know, we're in a house, we're all on top of each other. And, you know, we hear, we listen, we see how they respond. Even when my daughter is on calls with her girlfriends, I eavesdrop, you know, accidentally sometimes. And it's really cute, but I've gotten to know them and I've gotten to appreciate them a lot more. But it's also reprioritized some of the things that I think are no longer important. So you're absolutely right. What are some of these things that are no longer important? Because that's interesting to me to understand. Hmm. One of the challenges that emerged from um, online schooling and me working from home is my children being acutely aware of how much I'm working. Mm. Um, mm. And then coming and saying, when do you, when are you getting off the computer? Mm. Like, when are you coming to come play with me? Mm. Right. Um, which, you know, academics, we all, we, we work, we work flexible hours, but we also work a lot. And that means that our, often our children see us working. I'm not the kind of person who likes working on campus. Mm -hmm. So my office space has always has often been my, my, in my home, but because they spend much more time with me, they now have developed this idea that mom works all the time. Yes. You no, know, mom is always working. Yes. Right. And I do not want to give them the perception that once I'm always working, which is sometimes a little bit true. Um, but I don't want them to um, think that in order to succeed in this life, you have to be working all the time. So one of the things that has been prioritized with regards to how they perceive my, my work life <clears throat> is to uh, find balance, not only for my health, obviously, and that balance, I don't even know what that means at this point, <laughs> you know, uh, model um, healthy habits of, of work and separation uh, between work and your personal life, which I wasn't particularly good at doing before. I also 
um, even as things got a little bit better in the past year and you get invitations to travel, I used to be very comfortable. I was maybe too comfortable with, with, you know, I would sometimes be gone out of, out of the country every single month, Yeah, you know, a workshop here, a conference there, um, a research project, an opportunity for developing. Um, I, all, I loved all of them, but I am no longer willing to, um, do them as freely as I used to, because I think it's pushed me to also think more critically about how I spend my time. So, you know, these are the things that I've, I've reprioritized and my health as well, mm. because I think many of us, um, who've had to not only parent our own children, but as professors also fell into some sort of, you know, very much caring responsibilities for our students. Yeah. Those that we supervise mm. who are a little bit older, either senior students in undergrad or graduate students, but even just our students in general, I found myself in caring mentally caring and emotionally caring for them as they went through this whatever period we're in. And that left very small place, space for me to think about myself because, you know, you, you see on social media, you know, be awesome with all the extensions yeah. and, you know, like show some grace to your students and, which we do because we also know that there are human yeah, individuals yeah, on yeah, the yeah. other side of the screen, right? But I'm like, then who's who's considering me a human? Who? Like, yeah. I don't know if the university does. I don't know if my students does. Who's showing my grace to us, do. right? Because we're we're yeah. we're we're saying we're giving allowances to the institution. Um, we're giving allowances, and by that I mean not just our employers, but also to our provincial governments, right? Like we are the safety nets, yep. right? Um, we're doing exactly. this for our families. We're doing this for everyone, and I think who's who's doing this for us? <laughs> It's so that's a big question. You're absolutely right. Who and whose responsibility is it to watch out for our interests, not just material interests? I'm really talking about, you know, us living through, surviving through this and coming out whole on the other side. Mm -hmm. And I realized that, you know, with the exception, of course, like my, I'm really also, I'm also very lucky because my department, you know, is filled with people who are very caring, who, you know, will, when I don't see limits, sometimes will say, Hey, you know what? No, you don't need to do this. Good. <laughs> you know, so I'm, I'm really lucky there. Like this is, um, I know a lot of people who don't have that kind of working environment. But overall, you know, when you're thinking about recalibrating, you know, I've been really following the NAP ministry mm -hmm. um, online. I think a lot of us have mm -hmm. because it's talking about the value of, of, of rest, mm -hmm. you know, and the need to disconnect from this capitalistic model where all we are is, you know, means of production, mm -hmm. you know. Um, so all these things, I think have been ways to rethink not only my, um, the way I approach my work, but also the way I approach my family life and what I want my kids to think about when they're reflecting about the work that they do, the work that I do, mm -hmm. um, the kind of people they want to be. Um, I don't want them to think 
that it's that inherently as a human being, you have to work yourself to the bone. A lot of people do. Most people on this planet do, but I don't want to raise them to think that it is the, the purpose of living life. I really like what you what you say when it comes to kind of modeling, um, you know, what it's like to be a healthy human, what success looks like. And I think it's true. As you speak, I was nodding a lot because I think even my kids, right, who are two and five um, in the beginning of the pandemic, um, I was trying to work as if it wasn't the pandemic. And I was trying to I was killing myself till staying up till three, four a.m. meeting my responsibilities. Um, but then, yep. you know, then I got really sick. Right. Like, you yep. know, not not COVID, but, you know, I got diagnosed with stress yeah. and my body just collapsed. Right. And then I was thinking, why? Why are we doing this? And it's so hard to unlearn the behavior, though. Right. I mean, have you succeeded in unlearning it some is. of these things or? <laughs> it is. I remember speaking to, um, you know, somebody who works in research support at, the, at, at my university and he was like, make a list of all the things you want to do in an ideal schedule, you know, and then we'll look at it. And then when I, I did mine, he's like, you don't have a whole lot of wiggle room. <laughs> <laughs> I said, well, yeah, uh, everything, all the stuff got to get done. Mm -hmm. And he was like, well, um, and then I have another colleague who said, you know, um, I block lunchtime. I don't schedule meetings during my, my lunchtime. And that to me was a revolutionary idea to think I should not be, I should actually have lunch, not like shove a sandwich on my, my throat as I'm like typing furiously to respond to all the emails, but I should step away from my computer, have lunch and then come back to work. And somewhere in my day, take a break. Like, even, you know, my mom used to work at Zeller's when it was, that thing is, it still existed yeah, like yeah, yeah. years ago. Yeah. When she used to work at Zeller's, she used to have a 15 minute break. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I used to work at um, Stitches when I was a teenager. Mm -hmm. I had 15 minute breaks. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I actually didn't, like I was looking at my schedule and I didn't have lunch breaks, uh, get up break, pee break, oh like none of this stuff oh my God. You know, was fitting into my schedule. Like this is, this is what I'm talking about, right? Like you sit down on your computer and everything that you do when you're like, your stomach is really, really hungry. You make sure that your kids have a snack though. Of course. Like of you, course. I shout like, did you guys drink water? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did you guys have your snack? Get away from the computer. You're on break from school right now. I have their schedule on the wall, Yeah. but I didn't do that with, to, to me. So I'm telling them what to do, but I'm not modeling it. That's and most importantly, you know, I'm running myself like a car with no fuel. Oh. Makes no sense. And I think... Yeah, you, you feel me, right? <laughs> I feel you. And I think, you know what, though? I think... So I get it. And I'm trying to unlearn a lot of the behaviors that, you know, a lot of my learned behaviors. But can I just be real here? A part of the reason for why I'm trying to run like a car without fuel was first, 
at least in the beginning of the pandemic, I didn't have tenure yet. And now I have tenure, thank God, right? So I felt like I had to yes. exceed the expectations. a little bit more too, though, <laughs> Ethel. You got tenure in a pandemic. Hello? Uh, yeah, I did. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and trust me, I don't know. I mean, I, we celebrate, you know, I, I bought like lobster. It, it, I celebrate, I celebrate, mm. I, you know, we celebrate the wins. Good, and when this is over, good. we will have like... We'll celebrate together. We'll celebrate with you. For sure. We will have a feast because Filipinos love eating and we're going to and not like eating eating until you're full eating until you're you're too full to walk right um but yes. I also think one of the things let's just get real here is that I feel that you know as a woman of color I feel mm -hmm. that I have to not just meet the bar I have to exceed the bar and so during the pandemic yep. what happened was I mean, I don't even know if it's external pressures. Maybe it is because of the 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 signals I've gotten where my presence is kind of rendered illegitimate. But a lot of what I think mm -hmm. drives me is the need to show that A, I'm not an imposter, that I am validly here. Right. And B, um, you speak about your parents. Honestly, for me, I'm like, look, I've gotta, I've gotta, I've gotta exceed um what my parents were able to accomplish as an immigrant child because mm -hmm. through their labor um, and through their hard work and through their parenting, this is where I got to be where I am, right? And so yeah. it's always like trying to... So I have these competing urges and, and now we're being told, yeah. okay, rest and slow down. But then I'm like, yeah, but what about my parents who had to go through so much? Isn't that kind of yep. me being... I don't know. I don't know. Isn't that me kind of not really I honoring know. them? Everything you're saying... <laughs> Everything you're saying is resonating so deeply into my core. Um, and, and, you know, I've, I've talked about this before, but in addition to the pandemic writ large, different communities experience other types of grief mm. at the same time. When you think about your community, Ethel, like the bulk of the care labor in this country um, was literally laid on the shoulders and the feet of the Filipino community, yeah. particularly on, in Ontario and in Alberta. Um, <clears throat> I know that in Quebec, you know, there were, you know, racialized women made the, the you know, the, the largest number of, of, of workers in long-term uh, care facilities as well. It's gendered labor, it's racialized labor. You've written about this. <clears throat> and for the Black community, we were and continue to be in this moment of, um, you know, revolution mm. that yeah. was reignited and re-emphasized through the murder of George Floyd. Um, so that also required a different type of care imperatives, yeah. care for our community, mm -hmm. um, healing in community, um, you know, making sure our children are aware and yet protected uh, when faced with these realities that we work in and live in and live through, um, it adds a level of exhaustion yes. that I think um, maybe other members of different communities don't necessarily understand. Mm -hmm. And then as a child of an immigrant, there's also the expect, I see the statistics, right, of um, 
children of immigrants, you know, you know, often trying or succeeding in performing really well, but then their children, the following generation. I also care about these numbers when I think about parenting in a pandemic as a child of an immigrant and an immigrant myself. I, you know, I wasn't born here. Um, and the pressures of performance. Yeah. The counterweight to that, Ethel, in all honesty, um, is that I don't want to die oh, yeah. for this job. Right? I remember a previous <laughs> podcast episode of yours that talked about care, like caring for oneself, mm. right? Um, I, I see a, a very large number of women in academia um, women of color in academia. Um, and here, this is not a scientific research. I'm just looking anecdotally of what I hear and see dying at a very young age of, you know, chronic diseases, um, different conditions. Um, and, and I, part of the reason of course is, you know, well, you know, the health outcomes are not, uh, are, are, are lower for women, for women and for women of color when, when in, in, engaged in the medical system, there's data on that, but the work that we're doing is also extremely, um, emotionally demanding, uh, physically and intellectually demanding. And it's a high stress to be a woman of color in institutions that were not designed for us as gendered individuals and as people of color. Society, especially for women of color mothers, venerates the self-sacrificing mother, right, who doesn't even think about her needs, who gives, gives, gives and gives. And yet, you know, what are we teaching our children mm -hmm. if we don't remind them that mommy is also human? Because we forget that we're human. You know, yeah. and their children, right? So they, they, for, you know, their children, so they're, they're used to seeing us as providers of safety, providers of love, of care, of protection, of everything, you know, I, and I, I give all of that. Um, but I want to teach them that I, maybe I shouldn't have used reminder, reminder, because they know I'm a human being, but the conceptualization of you know, a full person outside of yourself, you know, who also has needs, needs that need to be met is not always what they associate with a parent and particularly with mothers. Right. Mm -hmm. So I'm like, I have to teach them boundaries about my time and their time and my need for nourishment and my need for, um, space to read, not because I'm a selfish mother, quote unquote, but I also want them to be able to model these practices of boundaries um, when they go out in the world, but also for, for them to, to, to be able to set boundaries for me as well when I get older <laughs> and they get older and you no know, parents sometimes are not particularly great at, at having boundaries with their own children when they're grown up. Right. <laughs> and That's I, won't, I won't delve into that set of the issues. That's a whole different No. And I think honestly, this is, I'm, I'm learning so much too, because one of the things that 
honestly that I probably need to remember is my mom needs boundaries too. <laughs> but it's so it's so antithetical to the way we've been taught and the way we yes. grew up, right? Because I would always I would always assume that of course my mom will like drop what she's doing. <laughs> Mm-hmm. to come to me and that's that's in a way that made me feel secure right yeah. and that's actually something that's a huge source of comfort but i think it's also important to remember that parents are humans too like my mom is a human um, my kids need to remember i'm a human and you want to model that behavior so when they grow up and start to develop more of these interpersonal relationships that they also don't under prioritize their health because i i'm a people pleaser right i want to please people and so that's that's you know, had me pursue unhealthy behavior where I'm un- yeah. I'm under prioritizing my needs and in, in support of others, and that's not good yeah. because I w- I want to keep living. <laughs> yeah, and and I think that's the balance, right? In a society and also in a cultural setting where the community is so important, right? So the mm-hmm. um, the the individual contributions to build, um, you know, strong and healthy communities. Um, sometimes run against this, what is perceived to be more individualistic behavior or values. Um, you know, my children and I watched the, the movie Encanto last weekend. I love that movie. <laughs> oh my gosh. Honestly, <laughs> tears. It's so Te- good. Like, it's uh, like yeah. literally like my, my five-year-old daughter, I'm just going to say this, um, she she was like she had never had this emotional reaction to a film yeah. and when and i had to kind of hold her and be like she was like because yeah. it it resonates so much with filipino culture even some of the dresses yes. and some of the mm-hmm. cultural tropes anyway i interrupted but oh, no no but it's, you know but you said everything right so there's also <laughs> a lot of references for you know my culture and and some of the values that were um uh, that I was raised with. Um, and then we live in a different time. We live in a different place. And I, I really love this, this sense of community and near, you know, I'm not going to spoil the movie, but you know, you get those lessons, um, in the movie and, but it's also a lesson for adults, you know, about how, you know, what is the value of the individual, you know, and how a, a flourishing, individual can be can provide so much more to the community once that person is nourished right a hundred percent a hundred percent one of the oh my gosh i could we could write like a dissertation about this movie um (laughs) bruno i mean i'm not spoiling it right because it's in the beginning (laughs) bruno was kind of negated as the bad egg right and 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 you know and uh, we can talk about why that is but i do Mm -hmm. think uh you know because his value as an individual wasn't appreciated nor seen more so than a lot of the other a lot of the other siblings right Mm -hmm. um i think because he was kind of like set aside then that worked to the detriment of the community right and so if we (laughs) i'm loving this metaphor if you nurture (laughs) and nourish the individual right and set individual boundaries and value what the individual needs that actually leads to greater community flourishing as per the movie (laughs) exactly exactly i mean it's i'm sorry you know people it's a podcast about parenting so we will go talk about movies for children that are actually drawing amazing lessons for adults as well you know you think about luisa and when maribel goes and asks her what's going on and she talks about the pressure you know, mm-hmm. it's not that, that Luisa is not, does not want to help, but she's, that's her strength 
she believes that her strength is the only value she has to contribute to her family. And without it, she's worthless. Right. So, Mm -hmm. um, if you learn to, if we learn to value in ourselves as individuals, you know, who we are, find out who we are, what we want. And maybe it's also because I turned 40 last year. So like there's all this thinking (laughs) about like, Oh, I'm halfway there. If all things go well, I'm around halfway there. Uh, maybe it's time to, to think and check. Um, but it's, you know, nourishing the individual to build community community for me is not just a lesson for my children, but it's also a lesson for myself. Right. I, I can help longer. I can, um, engage and build stronger and more, uh, sustainably if I stop looking at myself as simply a cog in a machine, but if I look at myself as a person with a whole variety of, of, of needs to be met. And in many cases, I am responsible for fulfilling some of these needs. So that requires boundaries. Um, I'm not saying that I've mastered it um, very far from it, but that's like kind of like the, the reflection of this, this period for me of like, okay, there's certain things I simply need to say no to, even if it's going to make people unhappy. And even if our discipline front, like how, what do you mean? You're not reviewing all these articles oh, this is because I can't, you know, I want to, but if I want to go to bed at a decent hour, I can't, you know? Absolutely. And I think what's interesting is that these kind of epiphanies were hard fought, right? Like it's not like, you know, we came to them immediately. Like we've had to live through the pandemic. We've had to live through turning 40. We've had to live through a lifetime of like making mistakes and learning and recalibrating, right? Um, Which I find really interesting as well. I feel like if I may, like the way we're speaking now, the Yolan like right now is different from the person who I met in 2017. Like there's a lot more, there's a lot more kind of, I don't know, there's a lot. And for me as well, there's a lot more prioritization of our health and our individual needs. Um, And I guess that's one of the things I wanted to ask as well. And one of our final questions is, if you could speak to yourself five years ago, what would you say to her? I think if there's one thing that I would tell myself is pace yourself, Mm. right? And that you are definitely more than enough. The academic job market, we say it once we're in it because we see it from a position of relative rest, right? Mm. It's a crapshoot. Part of it is work. A whole lot of it is luck. A whole lot of it is timing. Um, A lot of it is networks, right? Mm -hmm. But a lot of it is time and time and 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 and, and luck, right? Like mm-hmm. a job, a, a particular department will be interested in your type of research at this particular given time, and then mm-hmm. for two years there'll be no departments who are particularly interested in your type of work, right? So it's not just mm-hmm. the quality of your work, but a type of research that the department feel that they need, and the politics of hiring committees, right? Which. Yeah. Mm, We'll move, mm-hmm. leave that to another. You're, you can talk about that in a different podcast. So 
the mistake that I think a lot of us make, particularly if we don't get jobs uh, out of graduate school or we decide to explore other options after graduate school, which I did, is to think that if we prove to people that we can do it all, right? That we can mm-hmm. do everything, that we are worthy, that maybe somebody will look from the top of the ivory tower <laughs> and have grace and mercy and see our hand shoot up in the sky and say, pick me, pick me. I've, 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 I've fulfilled all the challenges, right? And I think I would have told me, like, I, I would have told younger me first, uh, like a really real hard look and say, you know damn well that you're going to be okay, even if you don't Mm -hmm. get that job. Mm -hmm. Um, And two, you know, you don't need to get on the tippy toes and stretch real, real, real high to get picked, you know, because your work is great. What you do is good. Your, Your relationships in the discipline, you've built them not only to be about transaction, but also about deep felt relationships and that is valuable but whether or not you get that job is not predicated on how high you can get on your tippy toes and how high and how long you can keep your hand outstretched that's not how it works and now that i've been hired and i've sat on committees i'm 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 realizing that there was very little that i knew about the business of academia even though I was a PhD student forever, it took me seven years to finish mm-hmm. my dissertation. Mm-hmm. I thought I understood and, oh, I was so misinformed. And maybe that's because of how I did my PhD, but I did not know how arbitrary a lot of this stuff is. And that's what Absolutely. I would tell myself because then that would allow me to say, take a breath. You don't have to be everywhere at the same, like, you know, Five years ago, my kids were uh, two, four, and six, you know, and the type of sacrifices that I've made, yeah, right? And the time that I've missed, I'll never get that back, right? And Mm -hmm. yeah, somebody can say, well, you see, it worked, like you you got the job, but I was like, yeah, but there's certain that actually did not need to do. Um, But I thought that if I just pushed a little harder, a little bit longer, and, 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 and made a few more sacrifices. These things ended up not being the deal breakers in my way. It's other stuff. And a lot of it is timing. That's so trenchant. And I, I am so appreciative of this advice because I think a lot of us, a lot of our listeners are embedded in hustle culture where they feel that they have to do everything, absolutely everything they have to sacrifice. I tell my graduate students, um, to always have some sort of um, escape pod, you know, mm. the escape pod in planning as you're on the, and you should have that escape pod even when you are in a ca- academia. And I think because many of us don't have escape pods, um, the racialized women in particular will continue the hustle through mm-hmm. tenure and then it will take a whole lot of mental re-engineering to allow them to stop thinking about the hustle even once they've got tenure, right? Absolutely. So um, if an escape pod in academia, and I know we're all in different disciplines, 
So it's not the same. The opportunities are not the same everywhere. Mm -hmm. But knowing, at least for me personally, that I could solidly land on my feet, even if this path does not work, gives me comfort that I don't have to die for it. And I know I'm talking in like very like melodramatic terms, but I think at the same time, the level of distress that we see people being in, even though we're in a very privileged position, speaks to the type of transformation that are happening in, in this place. This is so beautiful. You know, we have so much wisdom from you and I'm so appreciative of the time. Um, and thank you so much. Uh, and I really, really appreciate the time. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so glad. <laughs> so glad we got the chat. Uh, Auntie, uh, how can people get in touch? Uh, are you on social media? I am on social media. I am on Twitter. And um, just because I'm old and tired at the moment, for some reason, I actually can't remember what my, my handle is. <laughs> 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 I think it's just Yelan Buka, at Yelan Buka. And uh, that I'm there. I'm 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 often loud on social media, um, but I talk about different things about public health at the moment, and then African studies and African security and COVID vaccine and appetite vaccine appetite and you know gender and all that. Like you know, I don't. You know, I know they tell you, like, if you want to go on social media, you need to have a particular brand. But I'm interested in different things. So I talk about different things all the time. Follow Yolan because I love her feed. And can I just say that your feed gives me a lot of joy? Like your 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 tweets about your office mates made me laugh, right? <laughs> <laughs> They're awesome, but I'm looking forward for them to go find their own office mates in the classroom. Like, go back to that. <laughs> It's very hard to focus when you have um, the little people in your office um, trying to do their own schooling. So, yeah, but they're fun. I'm lucky that I have really fun people on this ride. Those kids are quite a bit of fun. While listening to Auntie Yolande, what stands out to me is that our health and our needs are important too. Asking for these to be met isn't selfish. In fact, in doing so, we are modeling to the people in our lives, including our children, why it is important to advocate for ourselves. Academia expects so much from us, especially those of us who are women of color, and tries to extract so much from us in order to keep the institution floating. These expectations are magnified during COVID. But as Auntie Yolande says, and as I paraphrase, I don't want to die for the institution. And so maybe, we should practice the politics of refusal. And this goes to all of you at different career stages. If you're a grad student or you're on the job market, remember what Auntie Yolande says. You are enough and things that you think you must do in order to get a job may not actually be necessary. Ask your no circle if it is. For those of you who are tenure track and are on maternity leave and feel that if you don't work even just a little during leave that you'll look bad, don't let guilt rob you from your rest and your ability to settle into new parenthood. For those of you who are tenured and feel the weight of institutional expectations bogging you down, hang on, look around you. Are you and the other women and women of color in your institution the only ones carrying this? Ask yourself, can other people shoulder the work? As 
I say this, I am making my own mental notes to recenter myself and my health. It might seem like a simple, even obvious question, but trust me, it's one that I need to keep relearning. And that's Academic Aunties. I hope you've enjoyed this month's series on pandemic parenting. Remember to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and visit academicanties.com to learn more about how you can support the podcast. You'll also find show notes and transcripts for all of our episodes. Find us on Twitter at, at @academicanti or email us at podcast at academicanties.com. We'd love to hear from you. Today's episode of Academic Anties was hosted by me, Dr. Ethel Tungohan. Our producers are myself, Wayne Chu, and Dr. Nisha Nath. Tune in next time when we bring you more Academic Anties. Until then, take care, be kind to yourself, and don't be an asshole.